0: Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Two weeks ago, we talked about grace and betrayal, and we talked about it through the eyes of Peter, and we discussed a few important points there. Number one, after Peter had sinned, all of the disciples still spent time with him. They still allowed him to be a part of their their group before Jesus was resurrected and before he could be reconciled. Number two, we discussed that Scripture should not just be taken at face value, and if we do that, then Jesus could not have forgiven Peter because Peter denied him before men. And Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. And so if we take that at face value, then Peter could not have been forgiven, but there's more to it, and we have to take scripture in context of scripture and in context of history. And number three, we said that there is grace and forgiveness available for anyone who may turn away or deny Christ, and that grace and forgiveness and mercy is available every single day. So today, we are going to discuss the other betrayal, the one that is more often talked about, and that is Judas. And we, we tend to discuss this in a way that, that just kind of says, all right, Judas did this. And in fact, while all of the Gospels give us a lot of information about who Peter was as a person, it becomes, more easy to, it becomes easier to empathize with Peter because we know him more. We know his heart more. We know the conversations he's had. We've seen more of the struggles he's had, but we don't get that same picture with Judas really all we get is he was kind of selfish we get a few verses here and there and so to really fully understand who judas was helps us to understand the significance of his betrayal and the meaning of it for us and so before we discuss the actual betrayal itself i want to discuss who who Judas was, and I'm going to do that enlisting the help of one of our Adventist founders, Ellen White herself, as well as we're going to look at a moment in John 12 that is very significant, and we actually read a little bit of it this morning, and so if you'd like to, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, just one chapter before the focus verses for this morning. We're going to read starting in verse 1. He says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of perfume. Verse 4, but Judas at one of his disciples, who he who was about to betray him, and that's kind of just this added part that John gives us. But for our purposes here right now, it's not that we're going to ignore the parentheticals, but I want you to pretend like you're sitting in the disciples' seats, which means that you don't know that the betrayal is going to happen yet. Because when John writes this gospel, he's writing from the place of, I already know this happened. And when we say that when we enter saying we already know who you are we are less able to understand and so let's read this from the perspective then of the disciples sitting there so judas iscariot said in verse five why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor now when you're a disciple that's a that's a that's a fair question to ask why are we going to quote unquote waste this expensive perfume when we could have sold it and given that money to the poor and made a bigger difference with it. And we've, we've interpreted this story a lot as, you know, being sacrificial and giving even your best to God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also seemingly nothing wrong with Judas's question here. Because it's a practical, it's a pragmatic question. This was the kind of thinker that Judas was. He was practical. He wanted to see a clear purpose for everything that was done. He was methodical. And so then John adds this in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So now we see the inner heart of Judas. And John interprets this later as as his selfishness and because of his thievery. But here's what I want to point out here. While following Jesus for three years, seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, Judas still struggled with greed and with selfishness. After seeing miracle after miracle, he's still struggling with those Two sins. And Jesus puts him in charge of the money. In other words, he puts him into the position that could actually best enable him to succeed. Because if he does it well, and if he has repented and and evidenced it, then, then the evidence is clear of it. There's no question whether or not he has been stealing. And so Jesus actually puts him in the position that he is best enabled to almost overcome it. Not necessarily overcome it, but prove that he has. And Jesus, knowing all of this, knowing who Judas was prior to bringing him in as a disciple, still allows him to walk with him for three years. Now we know how this story ends where Judas betrays him, but Jesus knows that too. And he still allows him to walk with him. To be a part of this community. But Jesus' grace towards Judas doesn't actually stop here. And so now we are going to skip to John 13. And Jesus is entering what would be one of the final the final night of his life before he will be arrested. And back in Roman times, if you don't understand foot washing or, or the significance of it, back in Bible times, you typically walked around in sandals or barefoot a lot of the time, and so your feet would get dusty and dirty. And it's not like they had ex- the greatest sanitation systems in the world, so it wasn't just dirt that was on your feet. And so when walking into someone's home, especially someone, uh, a home of someone who is esteemed, typically servants would come and wash your feet clean so that you would not dirty the house. To be in someone's house with dirty feet was almost to insult them. And for you as a house a homeowner to not provide the means by which their feet could be cleaned was, also, uh, was, was almost a status symbol. If you could provide those means, you were well off. And if you couldn't, if you couldn't provide that water, it's not like they just went to the sink and filled it up. Then it was a sign that you were well off. And so since they did this, this was typically a servant's job, and I want to make that Clear. And so Jesus and the disciples are about to enter what we know as the Last Supper. And Matthew 26 reports that just prior to this, Judas had met with the chief priests and already agreed to a fee to sell out Jesus. He had already made the deal. And so with that knowledge, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father so knowing that his death is coming soon having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here's this part of this story that we skip. This is the part that we don't like to deal with, and this is the part that, that I never really considered. Jesus washes Judas' feet after Satan has already put it into his heart to betray him. And not only that, Jesus allows him a place at the table knowing that Judas is still full of sin and going to hurt him. Fully knowing this. Now granted, yes, there's a bigger plan in place and Jesus understands the significance of that but I do not believe that it was just out of significance for the plan that Jesus would allow Judas to sit at the table with him. Because that seems out of character for Jesus to just go with the plan and forget the person. And so what seems to be happening here, especially it's washing Judas's feet, the job of a servant. He is still saying, Judas, I love you and there's still time for you. By allowing him a place at the table, he's saying, you are a part of this community. You are important to me as a person, as a friend, and as a disciple. You matter. And as they continue eating, as they, as they start to eat, Jesus would eventually say, hey, Give, even giving him a warning. He says, the one who, who dips this bread in, in the cup with me will betray me. And all of the disciples are like, well, who's it going to be? No one knows that Judas is going to be the one. The disciples couldn't figure it out. When, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the disciples kind of look at each other and they're like, not, not me. No one just looked over at Judas and went, yeah, it's Judas. They all thought the best of Judas. So when Judas betrays Jesus, this isn't just a significant thing for Jesus. This is a significant thing for all of the disciples. Because here's a man that they thought was changing, who was being transformed and was following and walking with them for three years, and suddenly he is betrayed all of them by betraying one of them. Yet Jesus still washed his feet. And I want to point this out as well as they continue reading. And as as after Jesus has said, one of you will betray me. In verse 27 of chapter 13. He says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, "What what you are going to do, do quickly. Listen to this. It goes exactly with what I just said. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. The disciples are still clueless. Jesus has just said, hey, Judas is going to betray me. And the disciples still don't get it. They still think the best of Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of the bread, he immediately went out and it was night. I want to make this very clear. Jesus nor any of the disciples kicked Judas out. Jesus may have opened the door, but Judas walked out. Judas left of his own accord. Which means, had Judas decided not to leave, he still would have been allowed to sit at that table with them. And Judas would eventually betray Jesus, hand him over to the Pharisees, and begin this process of Jesus' eventual crucifixion and resurrection. And eventually Judas would realize his error. He would realize the mistake he's made in betraying his friends, the people who he has walked with for the last three years, spent every moment with for the last three years. And in realizing his error, and because he had never truly realized all of the teachings that Jesus had had given him until it was too late, he probably believed, likely, that when Jesus died, just like all the disciples did before, but when Jesus died, it was over. He had betrayed his friend to death. And when he realized that he had seen miracle after miracle, when he realized that he was part of the two-by-two two that was sent out to do miracles in, in, in different towns, when he's seen all of these things happen, dead people walking again, the sick healed, the blind given sight, when he, when he realizes it just kind of clicks Then there's this, what have I done, moment. And I can no longer ask for forgiveness because he's gone. See, Judas probably believed that Jesus was the Messiah just a second too late, in his mind. And was driven to such despair by this revelation that he would eventually commit suicide. And this is speculation on my part. But I fully believe that if Judas had just waited and been able to talk with Jesus one more time and say, I'm sorry, I think Jesus would have forgiven him. That's not in the Bible specifically, but when I read Scripture and I see who Jesus was and I see all of the different things that he did, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to me to say that. That was the kind of grace and forgiveness that Jesus would often And there are lessons in Jesus' treatment of Judas And I think that's where I want to go here In the same way that, that Jesus gave Peter another chance I want to talk about how Jesus has treated Judas Through this entire process Because there are lessons for us to draw Immediately and today And these are hard to swallow What I'm going to share with you now If you disagree with me Don't walk out of here and yell and tell me and, and talk behind my back about the pastor doing all of these terrible things or saying all of these terrible things. What I'm going to say is actually pretty easy to agree with, but the second we put it into practice becomes incredibly difficult. So if any of what I'm going to say concerns you, please come and talk to me because as we begin to move our hearts in a place where we're doing more active evangelism and outreach and welcoming people into our borders our hearts need to be in a place where we are able to accept them and that term has a lot of baggage with it the term acceptance and so we're going to talk a little bit about this and so the first lesson is personal Jesus washed the feet of the man who would betray him how are you treating your enemies How are you treating those people that you suspect are your enemies? Are you willing not only to forgive them but to do something that is directly for their benefit? How do you treat those whom you disagree with? This is this has happened I'm gonna be careful in bringing up the election but I'm this is the clearest example that I can give because we've taken such polarizing sides Clinton or Trump, and I'm not talking about who you're voting for, I don't personally do whatever you want. Um, All right. There's a way we have political conversations. There's a way that says, you're not voting for so and so, are you? Or there's a way that says, hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the election. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, about each, each candidate and, and why you think this person would be qualified to run our country. Which one of those conversations would you rather have? Which one of those conversations are you starting? Are you starting the first one? Or are you starting the latter, the last one? It's okay to disagree. It's the way in which we do it that matters. It's the way that we interact with each other that matters. Because if if I come to you and expect that you're going to give me an answer, I'm going I, then I'm telling you to be on the defensive. But if I come to you asking for your opinion, then suddenly I'm wanting to listen. Now I didn't say that to make anyone in this church feel terrible about the way they've approached any conversation. That's not anything I ever try to do up here. I just want you to begin thinking about how am I approaching people whom I disagree with who I think are my enemies. Number two, Jesus allowed a man who struggled with his inner sins to walk with him for three years. I got baptized in 2007. Really haven't mastered the whole sin thing yet. And I don't think anyone else in here has. If you have, let's talk. I'd love to learn from you figure out how to stop sinning. As a church, as a community, not everyone who walks with us will have figured it out either. But we kind of have this attitude that says when you walk into those doors, not we specifically here, but in general, you have to act cured even if you're not. We say to be a part of this community, there's a a couple things you have to accept first. As if we expect them to have their experience with Jesus outside before they can come inside. But then we invite them as if they're supposed to accept him here. As if they're supposed to meet him here. Here. To, to say to someone, hey, I want you to accept Jesus, but to make them act as if they already had is to make them be a hypocrite. And that is not what we can be about. Yeah, there are standards of decency. That's, you know, I'm not saying I expect drunken people to walk in here and be drinking the entire time that they're in the seats. That's, there are standards. So don't take me too extreme here. As a church, not everyone who walks with us will experience an immediate victory over sins which have had a hold over their lives for decades. For some, their sins will be a hard-fought battle with blood, sweat, and tears, and they may not realize it is even sin or be convicted of it for a number of years. Are we willing to, as a church community in here, allow those individuals to walk with us as they figure out their journey with Christ? Are we willing to allow them to sit at the table with us as they have their journey with Christ? And yes, we encourage it. And we encourage things. That's not, I'm not saying we don't have standards for this. And number three, Judas had already met with the priests and betrayed Jesus, yet Jesus allows him a place at the table with him and the disciples. And so this leads directly from my last how much do we expect someone to get the talk and the walk right to allow them to sit with us and join our community? When we realize that as we join the community and as we participate in the community, that is when we start to be transformed because we're seeing examples of how we should act. Those who buy into a belief system belief system before being accepted into it Are the exception; they are not the rule. The term that's been, the the phrase that's been used for years, it's kind of run its course a bit. But maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Is people want to belong before they believe, and that's still true. In fact, the the movement now in 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 Christianity in general is that the fog lights and the smoke and all that, um, that's the new traditional, is the way it's being phrased now. Because everyone is realizing that a program really doesn't matter if people are willing to be a part of your community. And that people are looking for a place to belong, to experience life, the fullness of it, and happiness alongside each other. And I believe we have a lot of that here with us now. If Jesus, as Jesus says, people are to see we are Jesus' disciples by our love then perhaps there needs to be enough time for people to actually see that love in action. Maybe after an entire childhood of abuse by a church member, one or two years isn't enough to make them feel safe. Maybe that trust has to be rebuilt. And see, most churches I've seen have tried to make a policy that says, this is how long someone has until they get the ultimatum of you're in or you're out. And that's really hard to do because... If I can't apply one policy to your life that works for your life, everyone has a different walk, and so you've got to take them on a situation by situation basis, and that's the hard part. And you've got to discuss and work through issues together. Please understand me. What I'm not saying is we embrace sin, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we embrace the sinner and there's ways that you can do that and still keep your standards still keep the standard of holiness here but i would remind you that jesus when he preached one of the reasons he was so offensive to the pharisees was because they figured it was holy and a, to speak with authority and to stand up front at the temple and the reason jesus was so offensive when he taught was because he sat down he gave up the authority for a position of relating He did not sacrifice the standard of of the front. He did not sacrifice the standard of the teachings being correct. He simply changed the method. Are we willing to be patient with people on their journeys the same way that we would expect them to be patient with us on ours? Let me be incredibly clear on this now. Are we willing to let an openly LGBTQ plus person sit in these pews with us for even up to a year, two years, until they've come to a a knowledge of Christ? And I'm not saying that we're embracing or accepting it. But it is better for a sinner to be in the house of God than to be somewhere else. So if this concerns you, please come and talk to me because I'm not saying we're sacrificing our standards. I'm saying we're loving people. Judd Wilhite, a pastor of a church in Las Vegas, he said this, Sin is messy, so grab a mop. When you clean, you get a little bit dirty. When when Jesus reached out, he reaches out and touches a leper in Mark 14. This is kind of an aside. This is in my notes, but... He reaches out and he touches the leper and then he pronounces the leper clean. In other words, Jesus got a little dirty making someone clean. But Jesus didn't lose his holiness. Jesus didn't lose who he was. So there are ways we can do this as a church. And this is the biggest challenge we will face is how do we accept people? How do we love people without embracing what may go against our standards and our beliefs as a church. And part of that is creating a community here that people want to be a part of. The reason the church grew in Acts, yes, people repented and joined the community. They said, hey, I want to I wanna move on from my life and, and, and join this community in Acts. And 3,000 people repented at once. Most of those people were Jews who already knew the scriptures and who already had this life in religion and spirituality but a lot of the people that we will meet a lot of the people that we reach have either decided that they're too good for it moved past it or don't know it at all or their best idea of it is that movie Noah where the Nephilim are giant stone monsters and that's what we're dealing with are we willing to be patient with that and if your answer is yes then awesome and if your answer is maybe Because you're concerned about how I've presented it? Let's talk. Maybe I can be a little clearer. But I'd love to see us become that community that is so inviting and active and and growing because we are loving each other for where we are, knowing where Jesus is leading us. And yes, Judas would eventually betray Jesus, but that does not mean that Jesus stopped loving him. So as we move forward together as a church, may we be willing to let others sit at our table.